Wow, what, a, what an amazing journey. Some of you guys got to be uncomfortable. <laughs> Who's, is anybody sitting on somebody's lap? Or? <laughs> okay. My, my, my. Well, I'm going to try to hurry along. If you're visiting with us this morning, today marks the official passing of the baton, if you please, from one pastor to another. <clears throat> uh, Nick Spencer, uh, one of our own here at church, whom we actually ordained him into the ministry, uh, May 16th, 2021, and uh, he's now the senior pastor at Maple Grove. And other than his parents and relatives, there's no one here that's more proud of Nick than I am, and uh, looking forward to seeing how the, God uses him in the future. Did you know that really, really good relay teams, <clears throat> they spend hours and hours practicing the passing of the baton. The runners know that, you know, dropping the baton almost always means losing the race. And since it's been said that, in a sense, the church is really just one generation away from extinction, if you think about it. I mean, every adult Christian here must take seriously the biblical command to pass on the baton of faith to our children, to our family members, to the next generation. Like a good relay team, you've got to develop effective strategies for passing our faith to those who come behind us, because to drop the baton is to lose the race. So taking care to pass the baton is especially important now in our current cultural situation. Almost every adult in here understands what I'm talking about. It's a challenging time. And we wonder what it's going to be like for our kids and grandkids. There's a lot of forces working against us. And more importantly, they're working against our kids. Satan is saturating our young people with concepts and ideas that are diametrically opposed to biblical standards. The modern peer pressure that teens face today is primarily anti-Christian. They're ostracized if they don't drink or use drugs or have not yet had a sexual experience. And sadly, far too often, the adults around them are doing little to alleviate that kind of pressure. For example, our educational systems are not necessarily working for us. They're working against us now in the secular world. And you know this, parents, you know this. Unless you homeschool or send your kids to a Christian school, our current secular environment, educationally, is going to teach your children values that are totally contrary to the will of God. And you need to be vigilant. And if they graduate from high school with any of their Christian values still intact, they face even greater pressure on the university campus. For some time now, the philosophy of the secular classroom has been moral relativism. And basically, you know what this means? It teaches there's no absolutes. Everyone should do free, be free to do whatever they want to do. Homosexuality is viewed as an alternate lifestyle. The Bible is a book of mythical stories. And Christianity is viewed as being harmful to the world. They think that Christians are unloving and intolerant because they believe that everyone should abide by the same set of values. And the truth about America's Christian heritage, Western civilization's moral roots, and the historical reliability of the Bible and scientific evidence for creation, 
All of this is suppressed and ignored in most schools and colleges. Tolerance is exalted as the highest virtue, and nobody has the right to challenge anybody else's worldview or values or choices. And students are being taught that the world occurred accidentally, that life itself developed by some chance through evolution, and they are instructed that premarital sex is a personal choice. Just be sure to use protection. And now, of course, in the ultimate slap in the face of our Creator, young people all over America can simply choose to reject their God-given male and female identity at birth in favor of embracing whatever identity that they wish. But it's not just our secular schools working against us. Sadly, our government is also working against our children. Did you know, as Abraham Lincoln once said, that the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will become the philosophy of government in the next? So it should be no surprise that our nation is rapidly spiraling downward right before our very eyes. At a conference on teenage pregnancy, one secular speaker said, and I quote, as long as the religious prudes are allowed to define premarital sex in terms of don'ts and diseases, we will continue to be repressed. Victorian society that misrepresents information, denies sexuality early, denies homosexual sexuality, particularly in teens, and leaves people abandoned with no place to go. The one whom the government has named one of the top officials in charge of deterring sexually transmitted diseases, he points the finger of blame. You know who he points to? Those who believe in family values. William Bennett, former Secretary of Education, said, We are seeing the last respectable form of bigotry in America. People who urge bringing time-honored religious beliefs into public policy are now the objects of scorn and ridicule. But sadly, it's not only the school systems, not only the government, but, and you know this to be true as well, the media is working against our children. And the message our children are receiving from the media is counter-Christian. For years, Hollywood has insisted that they don't shape values, they just reflect community values. However, Satan has effectively used the media to steal and kill and destroy the moral values of a country. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But you've got to resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Now, I share all this to simply remind us that we have to have a strategy and on passing the baton of our faith to the next generation. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, 18, Moses wrote, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children will be many in the land that the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. The Israelites long ago understood that transferring of their faith would not occur in a single event. You know, we used to have baby dedications from time to time. That's just a single moment in, in the course of a year to celebrate our moms. 
But that wouldn't work for the need of this. We need to be involved in a lifelong, continual discipline. They would not just assume their children would simply embrace their values. Instead, they were to make a deliberate effort to saturate their young people with Scripture. And it's our task to make sure that our children leave our homes as Christians, ready to stand for the values of our Father in heaven. Psalm 61, verse 5 says, For you have heard my vows, O God. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Then I will ever sing praise to your name and fulfill my vows day by day. Now, by the way, that's just the introduction. Okay, ready? (laughs) We must pass on our values. I want to suggest five ways, five very distinctive ways that we need to do this. First, it's in the category of our moral values. Focus on the Family Magazine once featured an article entitled, Where Are the Cookies? And it told of a mom who is a state health nurse who apparently had a transparent cookie jar that's sitting on the dining room table, totally filled to the top with condoms. She explained that she has those condoms available for her children, ages 14 to 21. Why? Well, she said, since they're not going to abstain from sex anyway, she would rather have them practice safe sex. Two of her kids are sexually active, enjoying choosing their favorite color in front of their parents. And whenever the jar gets low, the so-called progressive mom quickly refills it. Now, and I think that this mother, who, by the way, claims to be a professing, church-going Christian, she's making several costly mistakes. First, she's allowing her children to believe that there's such a thing as safe sex outside of God's guidelines for sex. And second, she's providing a means for her children to be immoral. And in so doing, she's endorsing their behavior. And third, she's relating to them that she expects them to fail to live a moral life. And fourth, she's apparently not baking any chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) For Christians, though, the standard never changes. We believe that Jesus is what? Same yesterday, the same today, the same forever. Listen to Ephesians 5.3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Why? Because these are improper for God's holy people. How we need to be distinctive in this area of moral values. But we also need to be distinctive, secondly, in terms of our dress. 1 Timothy 2.9 says that Christians should dress modestly. One Christian mother tells of taking her 10-year-old daughter shopping. And when the girl's choice of attire was rejected by her mother, she accused her mom of not wanting her to grow up. However, the mother stood her ground, and one and more modest attire was achieved. She later wrote, you know, I love her, let her rant all she likes. I've shaken off the guilt, and I've drawn the line. And I would say, may her number increase. Not only our dress or moral values, though, we need to also be distinctive in our speech. In today's culture, our children are bombarded with TV and music and influences at school. 
you know, with language, concepts, and behavior that are not befitting a Christian. So we must not only teach them what is right and wrong, but we've got to saturate them with some positive examples. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And then not only are moral values in our dress and our speech, Christians especially need to be distinctive in our attitudes. It's popular today, have you noticed this? It's popular to have a cranky disposition. I mean, how many cranky, grumpy people do you know? And don't look around. But I mean, just think about that. This is some of the grumpiest people you've ever seen. They, they grumpy when they drive, they're grumpy when they shop. It, it's not very nice. But it's very popular. It seems that everybody's got something to complain about, something to whine about, some way in which they've been treated unfairly or the rights are violated. And our children can get caught up in that too, so very, very easily. They stomp off to their rooms when they're 13 and they don't come out until they get their driver's license. But that's not the way you ought to be in a home. Christians should be leaders when it comes to positive attitudes giving people the benefit of the doubt, being quick to laugh, quick to forgive, making the most of unfair situations. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, whether it's in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In Huron, Michigan, a high school football team was just whipping the other team that they were playing. But then the Two rival teams sued the winning team, claiming that a Huron team had a player, player who used extra equipment. Actually, what it was, was he had an artificial leg. The judge found in favor of the Huron team, though, commending the boy for playing in spite of his handicap. But everybody seems to want the way things to be the way they want them to be. Christians should be those who inspire others with a positive attitude. You know, I've wrestled with this all my life. I come from four generations of grumpy old guys. Anybody relate to that? You can, you can, you can, I tell you, well, you don't have to say anything. Just look around at the grumpy person you're thinking about. How's that? I never met him, but, you know, uh, my, I was told my great-grandfather was grumpy. I know my grandpa Amorain was grumpy. My dad was grumpy, and according to my wife, sometimes she wakes up grumpy, sometimes she lets me sleep. <laughs> but our attitude is a big deal. And then fifth, we Christians are to possess a realistic self-esteem. Young people will not have the strength to resist the crowd unless they have overcome their insecurities and been taught to have a realistic view of themselves. You know, there's all this talk today about imparting self-esteem, but most of the discussion is shallow at best and also untrue in many cases. Modern psychologists tell us to just, just tell your children that they're special and that they're important. Teach them to look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough and, and smart enough and people will like me. And, and they have gone so far as to convince a lot of us, I think, that it's wrong to do anything that would affect somebody's self-image. That is the reason the sponsors of a spelling bee in one community 
recently dropped their sponsorship of the event. They claimed it wasn't worth destroying the self-esteem of all those children who didn't win anything. Isn't that interesting? We're, we're, we're so preoccupied with this. The reality is, though, you know what? Life is filled with disappointments, difficulties, challenges. And we need to tell our children and encourage our children that they, need, they can rise above such things. You're going to have challenges. But the truth is, apart from God, you and I are not worth much, very much at all. You know, you can become the president of a company, a multimillionaire, principal of a school, or a star athlete. But 100 years from now, very few people, if any, will really know who you are. Even those who do know, they're not going to care a great deal. Even the Bible says that we're made from dust, and to dust we're going to return. You know, I preached a few funerals in 50 years of ministry. It always amazes me how quickly people recover. Tony Campola once said, they weep over your grave, and then they go back to the church and eat potato salad and laugh a lot. You're not very important to this world, and this world will get along without you pretty well when you're gone. It's kind of discouraging. Solomon discovered this truth. He wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.19, Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. If one dies, so dies another. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. You see, the only thing that gives you and me worth and value, you know what it is? There's only one thing. It's your relationship that you have with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the really only test of self-esteem that matters. One time a church was having an auction and a woman named Peggy Kennedy donated an old scarf. It was, it was one of those scarves. We've all got them. The ugly scarf, you know, the one that you wear to paint the house in. You never go out, you never go to church in the ugly scarf. But this was really super ugly. Had sweat stains all over it. But Peggy Kennedy knew it would be of value to somebody because it had once belonged to Elvis Presley. Oh, I could hear the women ripple all the way through the room here. Anyway, he wore it at a concert he gave many years ago, and when he threw it into the audience, Peggy Kennedy caught it, and the scarf would later sell for over $700 because it belonged to somebody that was famous. You see, you and I, we have Christian values, hopefully, and we have worth, hopefully, but not because of who we are or what we're doing. It's because we belong to someone with ultimate value and importance. We Christians wear the bloodstains of Christ. He knows your name. The ultimate number of hairs on your head he knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And our confident faith that this is true 
In fact, our confident understanding that all these things I've been talking about to you are true, that is what we faithfully must pass on to those who come behind us. I close with a story of an especially distinctive eighth, eighth grader. Her name was Marcy Oglesby. And one day, her eighth grade teacher invited a counselor to come to teach the students about being assertive in relationships. So the counselor asked the students, if your parents asked you to do the laundry and you didn't want to do it, how would you respond? Now, the correct answer, of course, was supposed to be that you should assert yourself and communicate your true feelings to your parents. But no, Marcy Oglesby didn't say that. She flatly said, I would obey my parents because that's the right thing to do. And this counselor then spent 10 minutes of class time arguing with this eighth grader, trying to convince her to change her mind. The counselor said, well, what if your parents ask you to do something wrong? Now, of course, that's illogical to some way of thinking and hypothetical question and all. But Marcy did not even give in to there. She said, my parents would not ask me to do something that's wrong. And she stood her ground. And the faithful eighth grader may not have received a good grade in that class, but there's something more important than grades. A baton had been passed to her by her family or parents, and she kept hold of it. And would be quite qualified, it sounds to me like, to be able to pass that on into the future. And even if it's intimidating, be like Marcy and don't give in. She said, my parents would not ask me to do something that is wrong. You know that God is pleased when you stand for the faith, even if it's uncomfortable. Some of you young people here, you know, when you, when you just take a hit for the Lord, He remembers that. He'll bless you. He'll reward you. God is always pleased when we stand for the truth. And our Lord Jesus Christ also paid a high price for His distinctiveness. Before he died, he issued to us this challenge, Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose and forfeit his own soul? Now, we all know the influence parents have on a child. But it's not just parents who influence our children. There's grandparents. And then there's aunts and uncles. There's neighbors. There's friends. All of these folks have influence. In fact, I'm not sure we'll ever even know until eternity what kind of influence that we have had on the next generation. But therefore, because of that, let us by faith make a commitment to being distinctive in the way we live our life and faithfully pass on this baton of faith to those who come behind us. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, You set an example for all believers, especially the children, in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. And may all who come behind us find us faithful. That's
um, the prayer that Raina and I have for our church as we go forward, as we get a period of transition and change. As we've already shared with you, we're looking forward to walking with you in this journey. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, sitting and listening to the great preaching. And uh, I uh, look forward to you all sitting here with me while we do. That'd be great. And I could go on. I, I was sitting here thinking a, a, a serious sermon like this needs a really, really funny ending or something, <laughs> you know. And I got looking out in this room and I see all these people, all your, your, your commitment and your support. You're here because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not here because some old Kentucky boy is retiring from ministry. <laughs> You're here because you love the Lord. And because of that, that's what's going to make our church distinctive. We're not over here at this place by accident. We never, ever would have imagined this, you know, long back. We, we wouldn't have done this. But there were those in our team that had a vision and said, you know, we believe God's going to do amazing things through this congregation. So they relocated us right off I-69. We never would have imagined that. The only exit between here and Morgan County, here it is, perfectly accessible. We draw folks from Martinsville. We draw folks from Bloomington. We've got folks coming from places that, you know, we never would have imagined. And we've got new neighbors here and there that are popping in and out from time to time. And I just, I just want to encourage you, the journey has just begun. You know, it's not some old guy that's, you know, fading away, though he is. <laughs> and it's not, that's not what it's about. You know what it's about? It's about the Lord Jesus Christ shining on the face of everybody in this room. That's what it's about. Preachers come, preachers go. I mean, it's unusual to stay this long, but nobody else would ever hire me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm a Kentuckian, you know? I'll tell you what, God is doing a marvelous thing in this congregation. He's going to do it in this community. He's going to do it in, around the community here. But the main thing we have to do is to make sure that he does an awesome thing in the hearts and lives of our kids, Amen. our children. Because we stand, you know, they're going to stand on our shoulders, that's for sure. We've got to make sure we're steady. But the bottom line is, we've got, we need to invest in our young people. We're hoping to have a Christian school that'll be the rival of anything anybody's ever seen in this part of Monroe County. We've got the staff to do it, the leadership to do it. All we need to do is just get started on it. We need to, can anybody take a look around and say we probably need to expand our facility just a little bit, you know? Yeah, well, that's a, we've got 15 acres. We never had that before. All we have is a cemetery, a rock wall. Yeah. But look, think about it. Think what God has done. He has not brought us here accidentally. It's intentional. And my prayer for all of us is we'll be ready for it, ready to receive what he offers, ready to be faithful, ready to walk together in harmony and the joy and the laughter that we all enjoy here on into the future, knowing that greater is he that's in us than he that's in this old wild world. And that's my message. I look forward to preaching again here one day. I really do. And let me also add one more thing. I want you to love this young man who's taken over this church like you never loved anybody before. He is awesome. And he's not a Kentuckian. <laughs> and part of what we're doing here is also not only celebrating, but we're also, in a sense, launching the ministry 
of Nick Spencer, even to a greater degree than he's already been. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm done. I think we have one song we're going to play, right? Is that, it's a, we're going to, is that like the invitation hymn thing? Or, well, we're going to do communion. I know. I'm worried about it. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Hopefully you were able to pick up one of our uh, communion cups is out in the foyer. Uh, I think there's some more out there as we go along here in just a moment. If anybody needs one, we'll try to track everybody down. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. You are so good to us. What an amazing journey you brought our church on. And Lord, we just thank you for that. We thank you that you paved the way long ago on a hill called Calvary. And you took the hit for us. You took our sins. You took our messes. And you took it upon yourself. And you shielded us so that we could stand one day before God clean. All our sins wiped away. And Lord, we can never repay that debt, but we can remember it. And that's why we come around the table. That's why we have the little cups we have and however it's done in church after church after church. We always stop here to remember that you are the one that paid with your own blood for all that we have in Christ and all that we have in the will of God that came from Jesus. So help us as we pause in this moment to reflect upon that as we share the Lord's Supper together. May, may we remember the, the, the grape juice that's representing the blood of Jesus. That's a little cr- the wafer, the little cracker, that we remember that that was his body that was broken for us on Calvary. And the bottom line is everything we have, we owe to you, Lord. And now he'll let us humbly tell you that in our hearts as we take this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.